Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of your intersectionality, and creating change. Today, I'm joined by PFLAG National Board Secretary Robert Marchman. Born in Brooklyn, Marchman now resides in Maplewood, New Jersey. He is a magna cum laude graduate of Allegheny College and attended the University of Pennsylvania Law School. He also attended Harvard Business School's program for management development. There have been many firsts in his life. He was the first African-American executive vice president of the New York Stock Exchange. He also served as chairman of a stock exchange's diversity council from its inception. Prior to joining the New York Stock Exchange, he began his stellar career as a branch chief in the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission's Division of Enforcement in Washington, D.C. Marchman joined the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority in 2010 and currently serves as the authority's special advisor to the head of the Department of Enforcement. But first and foremost, he's a father. Although he loves and supports all of his children, supporting his openly gay son strongly influences his work with PFLAG. PFLAG was initially the acronym for Parents and Friends of Lesbians and Gays, but it was later broadened to include parents, families, and friends of lesbians and gays. Although Marchman's son's coming out was not the traumatic experience many in the LGBTQ community experience, he worries about his son's safety in the community at large. His son's safety and that of all members of the LGBTQ community drives his continued involvement in PFLAG. Robert, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. You know, we met um, at the NAACP, although we had sort of started to converse like by email. And often I get a feel for people and I said, this is somebody I want to stay in contact with. And as they say, the rest is history. Well, so, I'm, 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 I'm pleased that we're, we're in contact, and you're an amazing person too, Michelle. So I'm glad well, we're talking. Well, you know, I, I looked at, at your bio that you sent me, and here's this kid from Brooklyn <laughs> who has gone on to achieve many things. Um which, you know, I mean, we're about the same age. And, you know, as African-Americans, you know, we often 
we have to work so hard and to achieve these things and do this. What spurred you on? Or did you ever see yourself being at the point that you are? Or was that something in your family that, that sort of like spurred you on to achieve some of the things that you've done? Uh, well, I, you know, I, I always um, say that I, I feel um, very blessed to um, have achieved the uh, accomplishments that I've attained to date. Um, my family, um, like many um, African Americans in this country, um, given our history, um, I'm I'm first generation um, with regard to college and grad school and moving up, um, you know, in in corporate America. But what what spurred me on um, was that my parents, although uh, they both had only a high school education, um, and, you know, they were both very bright individuals who were, uh, in my view, denied opportunities to maximize their potential. But for both of them, um, they always talked about the importance of education. And notwithstanding um, our particular status in society as I was growing up, um, my, so, some of my formative years were um, in the projects in Brooklyn. And that, I note that because early on I was able to discern how people were treated differently um, given their status. And then you layer on top of that race and it was always something that that was very apparent to me and was a motivator. So, you know, early on, I had a desire to make a difference. And one of the ways that I saw I could make a difference, early on I was exposed um, to Justice Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. was pretty... Uh, awed by what he was able to accomplish and what he sacrificed in order to allow persons of color, African Americans, to achieve what we a lot of what we have today. So that, uh, because I didn't have any lawyers or other professionals in the family, um, it was more looking afar and being motivated by individuals like that. Now I know you know. You do have a degree in law, but you you went into finance. I mean, you know, most of your career is in the world of finance. And although a lot of it has to do with enforcement and rules and regulations, what took you in that direction? Well, uh, I I was very um, I was very fortunate. I didn't have much exposure to um, the financial world as I was growing up. Um, and, you know, I tell people, although I was born and, and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and Manhattan or Wall Street was right over the, the Brooklyn Bridge, um, 
for me, it might have as well have been the Great Wall of China in terms mm. of the you know association of being able to be there, see that, be envision being part of that. But what happened is when I was in law school, um, I was starting to pursue careers, and I knew, given um, where my uh, consciousness was at at then and now, I would not turn into a law firm. I uh, didn't want to go to a law firm, so I, I sought alternative careers. And uh, an alumni um, at the law school, I went to the University of Pennsylvania, had mentioned the Securities and Exchange Commission because I wanted to get immediate hands-on experience and make a difference. I always wanted to be um, do be a public servant, but mm-hmm. make. A- and so um, that's how I started my career in the financial oh. services world. I um, went for an interview and was fortunate to um, get accepted into a program they were just starting as I got out of law school, and um, that, that started me on my journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you were the first. I mean, you're first in a number uh, of areas, you know, the, the first African-American. You also talk about diversity and inclusion. And, you know, from those days, you talked about, you know, looking over, and it might have been the Great Wall of China. Here you are, you know, I mean, many would say, wow, you know, as my auntie would say, you know, if they had your hand, they'd throw theirs in, you know. I mean, right. but... I was I was listening to one of your speeches, and you talked about going to your uh, an alumni event. Well, actually, you're going to the college that you graduated from about something and being concerned as an African American man driving the car that you were driving, going where you were going, about being pulled over, basically driving while black. Right. Have you seen a change? I mean, and that is like, you know, and you and I both know that happens. But has it changed much since when you looked over there and saw that that huge wall of China that you wanted to, uh, you know, overcome, and you're still thinking this? What has changed? Well, um, I, you know, throughout my, um, throughout my, life, my career, um, I've I've never forgotten the fact that I would not be where I am today, um, but for the sacrifices of a lot of people, I mean, literally giving their life um, for opening doors of opportunity. Um, And so it was important to, to be mindful of that and that provides a sense of obligation and why I've always focused on diversity and diversity inclusion and opening doors whether it's in my career or community um, it's just something that um, is a sense of obligation so with regard to your question um, I I will say this because I was asked this recently on a panel that I that I talked about at with a group of 
historically black college and university students and talking about the financial services industry. When I look back when I started um, in the industry, and it's now been over 37 years, um, the numbers of, of people of color has improved. And um, we, that's just um, factual, and that's because of a lot of work of a lot of individuals. Um, what hasn't changed is um, our lack of representation in influential positions within the financial services industry. And so they are talking about CEOs of major firms, um, senior executives, senior managers, representation on board. In other words, having um, a seat at the table of influence. And um, that is the major challenge that myself, uh, Congress, Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Congresswoman Joyce Speedy, and others are pushing um, in order to get those doors open. Because the bottom line is study after study after study after study shows that for organizations, and I would say communities, my, my own community is an example, that it truly embrace diversity and inclusion. That means true equality, embracing uh, people as equals. There, in the financial world, there is a bottom line benefit. Um, so, you know, you can ask why are we still where we are, and one of the major obstacles that we have to address if we're keeping it real is unconscious bias. Mm. And that is uh, something that um, there's a lot of discussion about. We have to have more discussion, but, um, you know, we, we need to acknowledge that um, there's a reason why the industry continues to be um, dominated by white men. One study showed like 80% of significant positions were, were uh, held by white men. And, you know, there's a comfort level with people who look like yourselves. And then mm -hmm. you have to put historical uh, context in terms of how people of color were viewed um, basically as inferior. We, we have to deal with that head-on in a lot, not only financial services, but in all, I would say all areas of society. But that is a major challenge to, to, to change, major change in the industry. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and it, it, it just sort of seems, you know, we do this work, you know, and, you know, you go and you talk and you hear this and you do that. And, you know, we continue to do this work and we continue to see biases, and we continue to see this pushback. And I know one of the things that you talked about was, like, you know, basically what you were saying was don't expect it to get easier. You know, like we're out here, we're doing this work, we're talking about this, expect some pushback. And you just mentioned, like, those who are in those positions, and even down to, like, you know, just like regular everyday people, what keeps you going doing this work when, you know, many people would say, hey, man, you know, sit back on your laurels, be happy. And I know you have this commitment, but, you know, hey, it's our, you know, we all have to periodically recognize that we get tired. 
And what keeps you going, and what do you do for self-care to keep going? Well, uh, you know, what, what keeps me going is um, you're right uh, to be very candid. It is very frustrating. Um, it's at times stressful. Um, it can be at times um, demoralizing. But um, for me, because I am a student of, um, of our history and aware of um, what um, my descendants had to go through, um, you know, we just recently talked about in this country, uh, thankfully, there's a focus on um, six, you know, 1619 and Jamestown and when the first Africans really came to um, America and what's happened in the 400 years since. Um, you know, I'm just mindful of the fact that what I consider struggles today really pale a comparison to what my descendants had to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, and, um, you know, the fact that just keeping it real, as much as I'm frustrated by what I see on TV, as much as I'm frustrated by institutional racism, as much as I'm frustrated by the lack of progress in the industry, although there has been some, we have to acknowledge that, the fact is that I do have liberties and freedoms that uh, our, our descendants fought for. And, and, and people um, who um, good, of good intention of all different races fought for. So that keeps me going, as well as my family. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, a, I'm a dad, father, and now a grandfather as well. And so um, I, I have an obligation to my family to do what I can do to make a difference. And, I, you know, look, I, what, what frustrates me is, and you're right, that you can easily say, you know, you, got, you have your so I'm going to, you know, go to the golf clubs and all that type of stuff. But um, I think what we need to realize is that um, it's, in my view, what we all have today, particularly people of color, is transitional. And if we don't fight to ensure that these rights we have become um, fixed and permanent, um, we could wake up one day and be in a very bad place. So that's what keeps me going. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, and I work a lot with young people, and it's interesting, I think, too, about what people went through in order to get here. And often when I hear young people talk about, like, well, you don't know what we went through, and it's different, but it's the same, because sometimes when they talk about you know, driving while black or just being, you know, shot and killed for being where they're in. And I want to tell them, like, hey, Emmett Till, yes, it's still going on. But, you know, look here what they get through to where you could be to this point. But then again, it's still going on. Right. Um, when you go and, and you talk to, and there seems to be a, a disconnect. And I think that sometimes it needs to be those intergenerational dialogues to where we can talk about, what happened in the past, but also acknowledge what's happening now and look for 
solutions? Do you find yourself caught in these dialogues? Yes, um, and I, I do. I, I've had the occasion to talk um, with uh, a number of students and um, and you know folks in college and who are considering careers. I think we need to be careful. I'm talking about we of the older generation need to be careful also not to fall into stereotypes in terms of how we view um, our, our, our younger brothers and sisters in terms of how they view the world. I've um, been very impressed by the talent that's out there and also um, the consciousness of a number of um, the um, younger generation and some of the leaders that are coming out. Um, I will say that, um, you know, we all need to do a better job of listening to each other and um, not, um, you know, being condescending. But one of the um, issues that uh, this country needs to deal with is just a sense of education of history and, frankly, the impact of history on this country today and on, on us. Um, and so that has to be part of an ongoing dialogue. Um, and, you know, I, look, I can understand why some of the younger generation, um, the more we go out from the civil rights movement, there is that loss of connection. And also society today is just very, it's a 24-hour cycle. So you want people to focus on what happened yesterday. That's hard. You want them to go back 50, 60 years, 100 years, 400 years. That's, that's a challenge. But I do think that's the key to moving forward for people to have a better understanding of history and its impact on, um, frankly, a lot of the structures um, and issues that we're dealing with today in this country. You know, I, I really loved your speech at the, at the thing because one of the other things that you said, you were talking about your son. In a minute, we're going to talk about PFLAG, um in the next segment. But one of the things that you said was um, that you said that you were your biggest concern and that continued was as an African-American male in this society that you worried about his safety in the community at large. And, you know, that is a parent thing. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I can recall where often I would ask my mom after I became an adult, like, why were you so concerned? You know, why'd you give me such a hard time and all these do don't? She said, because I was worried about your safety. And, you know, we sort of talked about, you know, we've gone on like how you even felt that but particularly when we see what's happening to our young people, that, I mean, that really touched me how that's your concern. I have a son, and, you know, he's in New York, and often I wonder, you know, and I, you, know you don't want to have the talk, but you have this talk. Did you have that talk with your son about safety and what, you know, the talk we all have about 
walking, driving, being black in America before you had the LGBT talk? Uh, yes. For, uh, um, you know, I've actually, I actually have two sons, and mm-hmm. um, I've had that discussion um, with them. We've had candid conversations about race in America. Um, we've had, um, you know, candid conversations about um, the fact that, um, again, notwithstanding um, the fact that we've been blessed in terms of our our, our situation, in terms of our our uh, socioeconomic status, that still does not shield them mm. from um, some of the issue, a lot of the issues, not some, the issues would impact our community. And so, um, you know, as particularly parents of color, um, money, wealth is not a differentiator. <laughs> and I, people need to understand that. So I was never under that illusion um, with regard to, um, you know, the safety of my, my, my children. And we've, we've talked about it. Um, and unfortunately, um, we've seen a number of situations where, um, you know, that has been borne out in terms of um, them not being safe in situations where they should should be children of color. So, yes. Mhm. Uh, well, we're going to take our first break and then we want to I want to get a little into PFLAG and that intersection of race and being queer. Okay, so we'll be right back. <laughs> This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. here on Collections by Michelle Brown. If you're just joining me, I'm talking with Robert Marcham. Robert P. Flag. Okay. All right. First of all, thank you for being a member of P. Flag. Um, I think it's an important organization. I think that if we could see more parents who are loving and affirming, not only being there, but being as an example for parents who maybe don't know what to do, you know, it would, it would move the, it would move the bar. It would make a change. My, when I came out, I was older. I mean, I was an adult. I was in my twenties. I told my mother, am 
although she had suspicions, she didn't have anyone to go to to know with what do you do with your kid, okay? How do you handle it? The peer pressures of, of, you know, because when you come out, it not only affects you, it does affect your family, and sometimes families don't know how to deal with it. How did you get involved with PFLAG, and did that come before or after your son came out to you? Well, uh, I got, I've been on the PFLAG board uh, now nine years. And um, I, it came, I became involved um, after my son came out. Um, and how it came about is that um, there was a, a very good colleague of mine um, who approached me to join um, the the board because the board was looking to Key Flag National was really looking for ways to reach out to the community of color and. Um, was wanted to know if I was interested in assisting the group with that effort. Um, I, I had heard of the group, but really did not know that much about it. But mm-hmm. given um, that the organization, um, when I did my research, what their focus was, what their uh, reputation, and, and um, frankly the resources they had, including educational tools, um, and also personally it would provide me with additional education, which I think as parents we can always utilize. Um, I agreed to join the board, and I'm, um, I'm really glad that I, I did. Um, the, the organization um, is really committed to having family, friends, and allies um, reach out and support um, members of the LGBTQ community, and of course, being there to provide resources for uh, folks in the community. Um, but they were. Um, you know, they on their own recognized that there was a need to do more to reach out to the community of color. Uh, that was something that was personally important to me because, you know, I had seen situations where, you know, folks, their, their um, child came out and they just disassociated with the child. So... Um, I, again, I saw a need, and um, I've been working with the group since then to do that outreach. And I'm, you know, I'm ple- pleased to see to say that um, the, the receptiveness from the organization has been sincere. Um, it's been authentic. Um, and we made strides in a number of areas um, with regard to first, you know, you always have to look internally before you go externally. 
And so the board, our numbers have increased on PFLAG National People of Color. Staff numbers have increased. We've done training, um, diversity and inclusion training. Uh, we've done um, a better job of doing outreach and trying to form liaisons and, and collaborate. That's one of the reasons I was uh, on the panel at the NAACP convention. Um, we just had uh, our convention in Kansas City um, two weeks ago and I had um, about eight sessions focused on, on outreach to the community of color, including our very first, uh, the very first plenary session of the national was a session focused on hearing the voices. It was a panel of made up of only uh, LGBTQ people of color and having a very candid conversation mm -hmm. about their views and things that the majority community or the current majority, I should say, needs to do in terms of outreach. Uh, um, it, was, it was a really um, good, candid, eye-opening session for a lot of people. So they're, they're moving in the right direction. Now, you know, I'm going to tell you, way back in the day, okay, I saw that there was a black community, but when you thought of organizations, and I'm going to put P-Flag in there, um, you thought of them as being, representing, you, you know, gay was white, white mm -hmm. gay men. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, at one point in time, and I would tell you, um, I went to a federal club, HRC, um, federal club event, and there is the mother of J.R. Warren who had been killed in Virginia. And I think, you know, you could have counted the black people there on one hand, and you probably didn't need to use all five fingers. And afterwards she came up to me and she said, where are you? You know, and I said, what do you mean? Where am I? She said, where are, where's our people? You know, you know, she said, people need to know that, you know, you're gay too. And after that, I drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> I got, mm -hmm. you know, I really felt the need. I became involved with HRC. I got on the board of directors because I, I hear what you're saying about that, making sure that it's diverse and, and inclusive. And I know that many people still think when they think gay, um, they all think more of Mayor Peak than of me, okay? And even at the NAACP thing, there was one of the things that, that what I thought was so important about that is it was like if we became gay, we had given up our black card, you know? Right. And, and it was like they didn't, our community was rejecting us. And so there's a way to like sort of say, hey, I'm still black. I can still get pulled over. Then I, I have no magic gay card I can pull out and wave and go, hey, look, give me a free pass. Same thing that happened to Sandra Bland could happen to me, you know, because right. I'm a black woman. Right. So, you know, and even now that HRC has a black president, you know, executive director, CEO, I don't know what Alfonso's exact title is, I still see some people who, who hold that thought, who still don't totally include us or think of black LGBT people, you know, with somehow other, I don't know, walking the line or not really part of both communities. You were there at the NAACP event. You talked about being a parent, a black parent 
okay, you were there, we were trying to build community. What do you have to, what has to happen to where people recognize that, A, there's black gay people, and that these organizations like PFLAG, like HRC, like the task force, represent all of us? Well, so we, I'm glad you asked. We we actually, I did a panel, uh, one of the panels that we did at the PFLAG conference was actually, I I was on the panel, again, it was all uh, people of color talking about outreach to the, uh, to the, to the LGBTQ um, community of color broadly. And um, you're right. I mean, uh, even when we talk about unconscious bias, right, to the point you just made, if you talk, if you're talking to someone and you say gay, you think of a white man. Um, you, You don't think of, um, Kareem Jean-Pierre, who uh, actually was the moderator for our plenary session. So um, for organizations like uh, PFLAG and HRC, um, one of the things we talked about, and this is one, we have to have candid conversations. I can tell you from PFLAG that it is an organization of people of goodwill and well-intentioned, right? But um, in order to have that outreach, there needs to be an understanding of the, the differences within the community of color, and that's where intersectionality plays a big part. And that um, there, so there needs to be education on the part of people who want to be allies, and they need to listen um, and ask how they can be partners. Um, there needs to be a dialogue, not that I have all the answers, and that's the way it comes off sometimes. And um, I'm glad to say that PFLAG, through the conference, we were having candid dialogue about allies, friends, and even um, folks within the LGBT community majority having an understanding of why they may not be seeing the type of support they think they should be getting for folks of color because of issues we have to deal with. For our community, you know, it's interesting. There was just an article um, in the New York Times about uh, Mayor Pete and why he's not getting support in South Carolina, and um, some people are kind of losing their mind behind um, you know, saying that the African-American community is homophobic. And, look, I think we just need to have a candid conversation. I mean, I think he has other issues, frankly. Mm-hmm. But for our community, we need to have a discussion about, and here again, as I mentioned at the conference, we have to have a real discussion about the impact of why we hold some of the views that we do. And a lot of that goes back to our experience in this country that slavery and how as men and women were viewed. And, you know, as I mentioned in the conference, uh, when folk, we, you know, we got a deal, for example, with this uh, crisis of murders of transgender women of color. 
and 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 acknowledge, you know, that oftentimes it is by black men and have an understanding as to why that's going on. And, you, you know, folks need to understand that them seeing transgender women cause a threat, um, that goes back to a lot of stuff that has impacted our community. So mm-hmm. for me, and I, I will use PFLAG and collaborate with others, for our community, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to throw our community under the proverbial bus to say, uh, you know, we, we're all just homophobic and hopeless. We need to educate ourselves as to why some of these positions we take. But the bottom line, I really would like to bring down that barrier to under, for people to understand at the end of the day, you know, that's our family. Mm-hmm. That's our family. And that particularly if you call yourself a Christian, and I don't want to get into deep, but, like, you know, you're supposed to love, not hate each other. And so there's work to do. I'm optimistic in terms of working toward that end. But, um, you know, like I said, the history, our history in this nation has had a lot of impact on why we act the way we do. And we need to understand that a lot of people don't. And, you know, and I think that one of the other things that you talked about is how each chapter, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be cookie cutter, that sometimes you need to be looking at what's happening in the community where you're at. And, you know, and to me also there's that part of being able to think critically. You know, it, it troubles me when someone says to me, you know, well, you have to be from Mayor Pete, you're gay. And I go like, no, I have to look at all the candidates and think, right. you know, and think critically about where they stand and where they're coming from, and that there's like, you're going to give Mayor Pete a pass on what's happening in Indianapolis with the black community, but you're going to bring up Kamala Harris's work in California on laws that impacted black people. I have to think about that. And As a community, and I think particularly African-Americans, we have to think about that. We have to think about if a black woman is being murdered on the street, it doesn't matter that she's trans, she's a member of our community, where's our outrage, you know, that will be, you know, so that part of, of, of thinking critically is so important, particularly in communities of color, but also, you know, overall. Right. Well, to that point, I'll just note this, and I did mention this at our conference. Um, again, even with that issue, which to me is a crisis, um, even there we can see the double standard based on race. And what I mean by that is if there were a transgender white women who were being killed in the numbers that transgender women of color being were killed, I, I firmly believe the reaction would be different. Mm-hmm. So um, for that one, I don't lay that, that issue, as I said, totally on the doorstep of the community of color. To me, that is an example of people needing to be educated when they say they want to, re- and I said this, I said, you, you want to be an ally, 
you want to reach out to our community, then speak up. We need to hear your voices uh, collectively. And uh, there again, you know, we get treated as the lesser than. Mm-hmm. Now, I thought, I mean, when I got the call about the NAACP conference, and I know like a few years ago when it was there, and then I was on the board of uh, the National Black Justice Coalition, and there was a panel, and initially they were going to have certain people, and we were like, hey, there's an organization, you know, let's talk about what we need. Then we got this call again, and, you know, where you and I were there, they also had four resolutions that came out regarding LGBT people, one particularly about trans inclusion. You talk about how you look for opportunities to collaborate. How important was it to you to be a part of the NAACP conference? Uh, Personally, it was uh, it was critically it was personally important um, to be there and talk to um, my community. Um, it was, um, I will just say, it was a very um, emotional experience for me because seeing in the, the responses of some in the audience and just sensing um, some of the pain that was in the mm-hmm. audience and sensing um, that... Um, feeling isolated. Um, after I spoke, um, and a number of people came up to me just to talk, and one woman came up to me and said, thank you for you know, being there and being there for your son. Um, that I, she said, um, 15 years or so ago, I had to be, there for um, a young man who was disowned by his family and had HIV, and I had to be the one to hold his hand and embrace him and um, because he didn't have anybody else. So she said, I just wanted to say thank you. So that, um, I again, it was important on a number of levels and just reinforced to me, um, the need for collaboration. Mm-hmm. Um, I want PFLAG to, and PFLAG is on board with this, to leverage the resources we have. Uh, we have a lot of, um, you know, educational resources, contacts, outreach, um, and also just to be part of a dialogue to open doors, open hearts for people to have a better understanding of uh, some of the views that they hold. Uh, and I really think we have to have just more conversation um, about, you know, and I get it because, again, a lot of the, to me, what we're dealing with is the, the, our experience in this country formulating perspectives, but at the end of the day, 
folks need to come to have an understanding that this is our this is our family, mm-hmm. bottom line, and that we we we're not we can't be in a position to not love anybody in our family as equals. So yeah, it was in a lot of ways it was important. We're going to continue that dialogue. We're reaching out to other organizations uh, to form partnerships. And I'll just say this, and I think it's important for organizational flag and HRC and other, let's just say majority white organizations, mm-hmm. um, these collaborations need to be collaborations where um, th- they're looking to listen they're looking to treat the, organi- the, the organizations as equal. They're looking for flexibility. And, and in some instances, we have to think about um, novel ways to interact. You know, it may be just enough initially to say, hey, it would be great if you take our resources and literature, we can make things available online, if that's the extent that you want of the interaction, that's fine to start off with, but we're here for you. Um, that dialogue has to start because um, I do understand in our community there is some distrust of some of these organizations, mm-hmm. right? Can, can I, number one, can I trust you, given um, how some of these organizations have treated uh members of the LGBTQ community. Let me look. We talk about Stonewall, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't even know that the, lead, the leaders of the movement were people of color. Thank you. You, you wouldn't know that, right? So mm-hmm. it's, things like, it's things like that, not giving Bayard Rustin his due, um, mm-hmm. that folks say, you know, yeah, you may be LGBTQ, but you're not any different in terms of how you treat me then. Mm-hmm. The straight person, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they, have, they have to understand that and come with that awareness if they really want to have a collaboration. At the end of the day, I'll just say this, it's in both of our mutual best interests to have that happen because we need to work together to support our families um, against you know, what the barrage of hate and negativity that's out there now. You know, it's funny that you say that because I know that one of the first board meetings that I went to at HRC and they were talking about, you know, how basically, you know, they hired people, but, you know, they just couldn't get people to stay on the board. And, you know, and I felt like an endangered species. And it was like, well, we invite them. And they might come to one meeting, but then they don't come back. And right. it was like that pushback to have a conversation. Well, where are you having the meetings? Okay, when do you have the meetings? You know, are you thinking about accessibility? Do you, are you thinking about that maybe somebody doesn't want to drive to the suburbs? And, you know, and to, and to stay that. And I, and, I, and I tell them something and recognize that everybody wasn't as stubborn as I, where I was going to keep showing up. But some people, the little things that you that you didn't think were uh, microaggressions really were and would make a person of color say, you know, they don't really want me there. Right. And 
I know that I, one of the things you talked about is how you've grown the board to do that. What systemic changes, what would some basic things that you had to tell them to think about to make it more welcoming? Because, you know, I know that many people tell me that I was crazy, and I said, you know, well, come on, if there's more of us we can do this, they go, we're not going to do that. What did you have to say to where people go, like, Robert, we're, we're, we don't have it like, you know, we're not tough like you. We don't have it like you. We're not going to hang in there. What changes, as small changes, did you suggest to them to do to make it more welcoming for people of color? Yeah, Michelle, some of the things you just mentioned are things that I talk about. Um, I talk about the need to, to, if you really want to make a difference, um, you need to be willing to go where the community is. You need to be more understanding of the differences. You need to be more understanding of intersectionality. Um, we people need to understand that this is not easy. That is going if you're really committed, it's going to be a challenge, and people are going to be frustrated because you need to understand that the folks that you're trying to reach out to. There is a level of distrust. Um, I also talked about the, um, the, the importance of optics. But I will say this, just like in, um, in corporate America and probably um, any major organization community, the tone at the top means a big difference. And... Um, one of the reasons I'm still on the board of PFLAG is because I've seen the real commitment to change, and a lot of that was driven uh, by the president who just stepped down, Gene Hodges, who just told the board, this is going to be a priority and we're going to do this. And mm -hmm. it's not going to be easy, but we're going to do this. And um, not and not and what I've have all, always said is uh, actions really do speak louder than words. And so what are we going to demonstrate to people to show we're real? So she formed a diversity and inclusion task force, um, which then under her watch was transformed into a permanent standing committee. Um, the nominating committee was tasked with looking to increase uh, diversity and inclusion representation. She was one of the people who was at the forefront with the outreach to the NAACP um, and others. Um, so to me, um, for folks of color who, who are either, you know, parents or, or in the LGBT community, um, I just say stay the course because mm -hmm. our family needs you to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's going to be frustration, um, but, I, again, um, it's great when you see results. And if you were at our conference a couple of weeks ago, it was um, just 360 degrees different than the first conference I attended because a lot of the – focus was on outreach to the community of color 
our president, new president, Kathy Godwin, got up and just said point blank, uh, we need to continue to do outreach, and we need to do it in a way that's authentic and sincere, and this is going to be a priority. Our executive director has made that clear to the, uh, to the uh, you know, members, and I'm going to not deny the majority who are still white. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he got up there, and one of the things he said has to be a priority of PFLAG is being a voice for the voiceless and specifically the transgender woman of color and the crisis in the community. So, you know, that, so if you can be part of that, um, that's, that's a good feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we're going to take our second break, and then um, I want to go talk about how PFLAG is making that safe space. So we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Robert, one of the things that you, you talked about was um, authenticity and how PFLAG creates a safe space that welcomes persons of color into the PFLAG family. How do you see PFLAG being that? And, you know, in the community for LGBTQ people? Yeah, well, for me, um, PFLAG is a um, organization that um, has a storied history of being a um, leader in the LGBTQ community um, with regard to advocating um, for the rights of the community and also um, being part of the effort to bring together uh, friends, family, and allies to, to have that support, that that network of love and support. And so there's um, a foundation, established foundation of success with regard to support for family who are dealing um, with various issues. And 
to me, PFLAG uh, can leverage those resources to help the um, community of color, LGBTQ community of color, family, friends, and allies um, to help them navigate through some of the issues that families may be dealing with when a child uh, comes out, um, dealing with um, issues of support, dealing with issues of how do you um, interact with family, mm-hmm. that being prepared for um, interaction with friends, um, also helping the mindset with regard to um, you know, issues you may have to deal with with faith and religion. So there are a number of areas um, that um, where PFLAG can provide support. And as we're moving forward and PFLAG itself is getting better educated on the issues which are impacting the LGBT community of color, and there I'm talking about this whole dynamic, Michelle, we talked about intersectionality. Mm-hmm. For them to have a better understanding so they can engage in that dialogue and be more empathetic to um, some of the issues that, um, and, and, and have an understanding as to why, you know, a, a child of color in, um, you know, in a Latinx family may be dealing with some issues which are the result of, um, you know, culture. Um, for a lot of these issues that we're dealing with, Asian Pacific, um, Na- you know, Native American, African American, um, each of our communities have issues that we're dealing with and and in order to have an understanding to help the family through and and provide love and support, um, we need to leverage the experience we have, but also uh, be part of the expanded dialogue. So I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm, you know, optimistic with regard to the support that PFLAG can provide to our community. And frankly, um, I don't want to stereotype our community, but I am um, empathetic to what folks are going through, again, because of the experience that we have. And I'd like us to be part of that process to let people kind of get into an understanding of why they may hold certain views and get them to understand that, you know, those views impact how they may love their child and that it's really important that they be there for their child. Um, it's, it's just heartbreaking when you hear these situations where a child, um, you know, in the community of color comes out and their parents just literally throw them out the house. Mm-hmm. I've, heard, I've heard too many of those stories. And by the way, 
So I don't want to come off as being limited in, in my views. That's not to say that doesn't happen in, in, in the majority community, right? I've, sure. I've, mm-hmm. I've, heard, I've heard on both sides, but because of, of um, who I am, um, you know, and being a member of the community of color, I'm, I'm going to hear those other stories. And um, we just need to kind of have a community conversation as to why you would hold those views. And there's some deep conversations, and I think we can be part of that dialogue. Again, be part of the dialogue. We have to be part of the dialogue, but it has to be collaborative. We have to listen. Um, we can't be condescending. And, for, and the other thing we need to do is we need to build trust. Mm-hmm. We need to build trust. Um, and... and um, I will tell you from my years in the organization, this is an organization that really, they, they practice what they preach. They really do. I've seen it firsthand, and it's really impacted positive lives of, of um, families and, and more important to me, children. Okay. I have a question now. PFLAG stands for Parents and Friends of Lesbian and Gays, and that's a pretty big umbrella, and we've talked about, youth, you know, which, which is where many people, your first thought goes to are our young people and, you know, and helping their parents embrace them, love them, and do that. And we've talked about our trans sisters of colors who are being murdered. It's an epidemic. Is there room under this big umbrella which covers our community to include or think about LGBTQ elders, many who are living in poverty, living alone, who have been part of families who might not, you know, who who were that child. And now, you know, I mean, you're starting to see some people talk about housing and that. But, you know, if you, if, as I, you look at an umbrella supporting the community, making it a healthier, stronger, safe community for everyone, how do we not forget or leave behind yes. our elders? Yes. Uh, the answer is yes. Um, yes with an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, to that point, um, that, 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 that issue was the focus of conversations at the conference. Wow. And so that, that is on our radar screen. Um, you know, there's a lot that uh, the organization is taking on, mm-hmm. uh, but um, we need to. And mm-hmm. when you, one of the reasons I think PFLAG can be a differentiator um, from other organizations is that P, PFLAG's um, main focus has and continues to be um, boots on the ground, to be there in the forefront, to be there with the family, to be in the community. And um, so being there in the community, um, on the front line, um, affords you the opportunity to um, be part of a constructive change. And it's um, a change that 
needs to include everybody who's part of the community. So I appreciate your raising that, uh, that issue. Um, and the fact that I haven't mentioned it is not meant um, to say that it's not on our radar screen, it is. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm, we're coming towards a close now. And, you know, like I, I told you before, one of the things that, that I thought about when you said it, and you said, wouldn't it be wonderful if PFLAG is an organization that leads our society forward through the focus on love, family, and equality to bridge some of the racial barriers that are tearing this country apart? But, you know, I also see it being, it can be that bridge for some of the socioeconomic barriers that are, are tearing us apart. I mean, they're all kind of interrelated. And, you know, when you think of a, what family really is, whether it's biological or if it's chosen family, that is what happens to that community can be the family is the heart and soul of it. And, you know, we might not immediately change hearts and minds, which many people want to see happen. Like, we have to see change. But you see PFLAG in communities as a way to move hearts and minds towards a community, a country, and ultimately a world where we bridge some of these racial and other barriers I, I do, and here's here's why. And um, you know, the more I'm engaged with these issues, and um, whether it's um, my work with PFLAG or the work I'm doing on my in my community through the Community Coalition on Race or mm. the literacy or other issues, um, you know, one common um, denominator is um, folks not having um, information, correct information, to form um, their appropriate action plans to address the issue. And I really think that one of the things that PFLAG does is afford people the opportunity to dialogue dialogue and engage, and that's even people who have different points of view. And why that's important is because if people um, start having conversations and start understanding um, that if we work more together, it's to everyone's benefit. And I'm not being Pollyannish here because one thing mm-hmm. I really come to understand and I say this from this perspective, look, you need to address the issue of what's in it for me, being very blunt, right? Um, mm-hmm. And if we, I just think about if we spent more time focusing on solutions and some of the issues that are um, confronting the nation instead of spending so much time focusing on putting down people because of race or sexual orientation or uh, because they're immigrants. And if folks are here and understanding that collectively we're all in the same family and and work together, um, that we can, because there is um, strength and unity, 
we would all be much better off. Um, and, you know, there's empirical data for that. So that's my hope, that we can lead the dialogue in a constructive way. Um, hopefully we'll get back to a point where we can start engaging in civility again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be... Um, it would be great if we all, and I'm just saying, all could kind of wean ourselves off cable TV. Of all, <laughs> Thank I'm, and you. I'm, that, if I had a wish, uh, and I'm not getting into uh, right, left, center spectrum, I, I would say all of cable TV um, can um, has its issues and the impact that it has on us without a lot of people understanding that. So if we can get into a mindset where we can engage in unfiltered conversations and also um, get to a point where we can have um, conversations, uh, candid conversations, courageous conversations, those are the conversations that we need to have uh, to change hearts and minds in a way that will be beneficial all. Because a lot of folks are doing things and they don't even understand why they're doing it. Well, Robert, um, the best way, I mean, if someone, is there a directory? If someone goes to the PFLAG website, is there a directory so they can find out if there's one in their office, in their city rather, and if not, how to get one started? Sure. Uh, so the best way, if you go to the PFLAG, pflag.org, and um, there, there is on the site um, information. And also, um, I will just say this, um, with our staff, they are very responsive. Our executive director, Brian Bond, um, is um, – one of his priorities, and he said it uh, in his opening remarks at our conference, is outreach to the community of color. This is a priority to him. Um, and so we're going to be looking, you know, if people are interested, they can find that information. Uh, Brian's contact information and staff is there. Reach out. I would just encourage people to reach out. Um, and, um, you know, we'd love to hear from folks. We'd love to hear folks' ideas about outreach. We don't have the sol- all the solutions, and I will just say that we're looking more to listen. We really want to be engaged in true partnership, and we really want to be an organization that is um, representative of all who are in the LGBTQ community, not just some, and that's what we're shooting to do. Uh, we really want to, you know, hope we're, we're, we're going to be continuing to push so that um, when people think about PFLAG, they won't only be viewed as a majority white organization to be very candid. Yeah, so they'll, they'll see it as a family, building right. our families. Yeah. Right. Well, Robert, I want to thank you for your activism, your advocacy, your optimism. You know, and for your voice. I mean, it's important. The work that you're doing, it's so important. And there are never enough people out there talking this. Hopefully, if more of us are out here talking it face-to-face, 
fewer people be watching cable news. You know, we'll just right. turn it off and we'll be having these real conversations. I also thank you for your time. I, you're a busy guy. <laughs> but I, like I said, I met you and from the beginning. I knew that you are kindred spirit, and I look forward to staying in touch with you and having more conversations with you about how we build a better community. Thank you, Michelle, and just uh, thank you for all you do. Um, it's really been a privilege to speak with you, meet with you, and look, this is a journey. Uh, I hope everybody understands that, but um, we, 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 we can be successful, and our family and families are depending on it. Um, there are a lot of people who need us, and uh, I don't intend to let them down. So uh, I'm going to continue to use the blessings that have been bestowed upon me to that end. But I thank you so much for giving me this opportunity, and I do look forward to us talking in the future. So thank you so much. I want to thank my guest, Robert Marchman. Marchman who is the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority's Special Advisor to the head of the Department of Enforcement, also serves as PFLAG's National Board Secretary. PFLAG is a nationwide organization for parents, families, and friends of the LGBTQ community. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines standing boldly in the crosshairs of air intersectionality and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.